Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for taking the time to listen today. I know that life gets busy and we're inundated with a plethora of streaming options out there for learning, entertainment, or just to shut your brain off for a little bit, which in my opinion is perfectly acceptable. The fact that you've dedicated yourself to our podcast for the next 30 minutes or so is an honor and privilege for us. I love these two that you're about to hear from. Collectively, Kim and Eric have over 30 years experience in this industry. Respectively, they've worked on various titles, including Ghost Recon, Terminator Salvation, Walking Dead, Apex Construct, Horizon Zero Dawn, and most recently, Battlefield. I will mention that since delivering this talk in September, Kim has left DICE to go on to New Horizons, now working as an art director at Tokoboka. Um, for those of you who have kids, that company might sound familiar. Uh, my daughter, in particular, was extremely excited when I said that I know someone who works for the company that makes her favorite iPad games. In today's talk, the guys will explore various stages and processes of an external development partnership, from initial trials to advanced techniques. They get into the details of their innovative approach, combining new school co-dev with traditional outsourcing. Of course, they did all this with the interest of getting the best out of their external partners, whilst allowing their internal artists to maintain ownership and flourish. Okay, I now present Unlocking the Power of External Partnership Collaboration with Kim Ava and Eric Pedersen. Please enjoy. Welcome everyone to our talk, Unlocking the Power of External Partnership Collaboration. So we will be two presenters today and we will introduce ourselves a bit more shortly. Uh, but first, our agenda. Uh, we'll cover six topics today. Uh, the first one mainly being an introduction about us and a bit of uh, EA DICE. And uh, the rest will take us through our journey on how we work with external partnerships at EA DICE and mainly on the environment art side. So let's get started with the first point, the introduction. And uh, my name is Kim Ava. I'm a key environment artist, and that's basically what's being referred to a principal environment artist at many other companies. It's a new role for me, and uh, previously, just a few months ago, I was working as an environment art lead. Hello, my name is Eric Peterson, and I'm the lead outsource artist working with the environment team at DICE. So, this marks the 10th year uh, in the industry for me. I started back in 2013 as an intern at a small indie company working on a game that never saw the daylight. And then uh, I continued doing a small internship on the Solus project and that was also during the time I was a 3D art student. And then uh, I landed my first job at uh, Guerrilla Games working on the first Horizon Zero Dawn. And then from there, I joined a VR startup called Fast Travel Games, where I worked on Apex Construct. And then just five years ago, I joined EA DICE and been working on the Battlefield franchise ever since then. Yeah, I have some odd 22 years in the games industry, so I will only cover released console and PC games here now. So, however, before that, I started out with casual web games back in 98, and I joined Starbase in 2001, working as a 3D artist in a very small dev team. And we did a game called Enclave for Xbox One. Uh, and then we made a game called Chronics of Riddick, and that was followed by The Darkness. 
After that, I joined uh, Grin, taking on a lead role. And during that work on Ghost Advanced uh, Warfighter uh, 2, um, I came in contact with outsourcing. So after that, I switched into art management uh, and uh, was working on fully outsourced maps uh, for Wanted the Game and then co-development for Terminator Salvation. I left uh, the industry for a few years and then eventually rejoined Starbase as an art and outsource manager. So I was following a traditional uh, OS methods during Payday 2 and the life cycles of that and eventually went back into code development with fully outsourced map for uh, Overkill's The Walking Dead and then I joined ICE. So what do we do in our roles then? As a key environment artist, I'm focused on the pipeline and workflows on the environment art side, mainly for architecture and uh, structural arts. I'm also setting up expectations on art quality together with directors and other leads and best practice guidelines for both the craft and the project we're working on. Part of my job is also mentoring internal and external artists and also the leads by holding workshops, arranged training and being available for personal coaching. And as a lead outsource artist, I conduct vendor trials and I specialize in setting up our engagement processes and I work with key artists like Kim here to ensure that we have documentation of our tribal knowledge and uh, once we have this package, I conduct uh, onboarding and hold training for the external parties. Uh, and uh, my day-to-day -day role is communication and supporting our internal teams uh, to be successful working with our external partners. What about DICE then? Who are we? Uh, we are a Swedish uh, game developer based out of Stockholm. And our company was founded in 1992. And we've been a subsidiary of Electronic Arts since 2006. So since the first uh, release of the Pinball Dreams in 1992 for Amiga, we've uh, released 48 titles where we find games such as Motorhead, Codename Eagle, Battlefield, Mirror's Edge and Star Wars The Battlefront series. Uh, and since the debut of Battlefield Bad Company, our game engine Frostbite were introduced. So let's move into talking about our hybrid method then. So let's start with our mission, uh, creating sustainable cutting edge art for games through embracing the future of content creation, to quote our content production director. So how did we land on this hybrid model and uh, why did we take this specific path? The traditional outsourcing uh, method requires usually a team of uh, internal artists that reviews, feedback, make briefs, prep work and so on. And uh, our internal team need to look different. We work with a pod structure for different maps. So we need internal artists, but we also need them to be flexible and skilled. However, going the traditional way gave us this unhappy internal team and leading to frustration and uh, unmotivation. So to quote a few of the uh, feedback points we got was, I just want to focus on art. Can't we just have dedicated outsourcing artists that wants to do this? My skill as an artist are degrading. And this is just a few of the ones that came through. So having a lot of artists internally, however, is very cost, costly and slow. We wouldn't be able to have that massive scale of an internal team. Also, of course, the studio will compare to other studios and look at the numbers and wonder why we are so slow and not that cost efficient. So from the studio's point of view, you will hear things like, why do you need more people? You're already the largest team. Uh, can't we just outsource it? 
uh, that studio has outsourcing, why don't you? So how do you strike a balance between uh, this, like keeping the artist happy and motivated, as well as keeping the studio happy and cost and time efficient? To start off, we had to redefine the role of an environment artist to set some core pillars, both to set expectations on the artist, but also to set expectations on the studio. Being an environment artist for a project, specifically for the map uh, creation, you're all what we call being a Tetris shaped. You're an artist, a planner, and an art director. So to enable an artist striving for this balance, we cannot have a traditional outsourcing method, nor can we have like full code dev either. And neither can we have only purely art content creators at the studio. So this is why we decided to make our own hybrid method that combines part of the traditional outsourcing and code dev that Eric will now talk more about. The EA DICE hybrid external development method. Well, we combine the elements of code development and traditional outsourcing models to leverage on the benefits of both approaches. The difference are that our internal artists are collaborating directly with integrated external artists. For the external team to be fully capable of using our proprietary game engine and to understand our workflows, we spend two months onboarding every external artist, so they're prepared for full production. Our internal teams owns the entire map, and they spend time on concept development, art direction, and taking high-level creative decisions. So the assets placed on the maps are produced by our EA partner studios and external teams. The internal artist owns their respective backlog and assigns assets to their vendor artist, providing them with asset guidance, feedback, reviews, and following our established workflows in order to ensure the alignment for the project's artistic vision. Communication and project management tools facilitate seamless integration and coordination, and the internal and external artists are meet, uh, frequently meeting up to sync, and both teams are continually coached by an outsourced lead such as myself. So hybrid art outsourcing requires training efforts, but in return it offers flexibility, scalability, and provides access to specialization in skills while maintaining control of the artistic direction. It maximizes uh, on efficiency, productivity, and the quality bar by combining internal expertise with external staffing. What do we mean when we talk about internal teams, EA partners, studios, and external teams? Our internal studios and teams are the ones situated in Stockholm, the EA DICE and Frostbite teams and departments. Then we have collaborations with other EA partner studios, such as Criterion, Electronic Arts Gothenburg, Electronic Arts Shanghai, and Ripple Effect, that's previously known as DICE LA. But they're not the same studio or teams as our internal ones. The last category are completely different studios that we collaborate with. Retainer-based uh, teams that consist of artists, leads, project managers that we embed into our internal teams for a period of time. And to point out, these studios are our integrated teams. So all of these studios and teams, regardless if they're internal or external support, and collaborate in the same way. We do not make a difference between the, them. All right, 
So now when you know a little bit more about the foundation of our hybrid method and which studios we've been working on together with, um, well, together with on the title Battlefield 2042, uh, let's look at some of our pipelines. So, so all of this studios oh. and teams. <laughs> Sorry. Um, let's stop the slides. Um, Let's see. So we divide uh, our pipeline roughly into three buckets, those that you see on the screen. We have standard documentation, the first bucket, written in Confluence, uh, which includes technical and performance information such as tech meshes, collision, raycast, enlighten, includers, clustering, instance counts, and all of that. Uh, we also have project documentation, including art direction, gameplay pillars, design, and destruction direction. Then we have workflow documentation that includes asset classification, which guides how assets should be created. So both the standard documentation and the workflow documentation lives in Confluence and are not part of the briefs. This information is essential for the artist to create uh, content and is also set prior to the project. So the last bucket then is what we call blueprint. And this is basically the combined package of the first two buckets. Uh, the standard and workflow documentation, plus a visual brief and speed model, which is the individual asset or a bundle of assets that are unique to that asset. So if we look at the environment art categories, we have divided them into props, architecture, vegetation, and level. So to be efficient in our internal pipeline, we have adopted the exact same pipeline and workflows, both internally and externally. We expect the internal team and the external team to work exactly in the same way. Uh, this determines also how you create a type of asset and are part of the workflow documentation. So all of these categories have different asset classifications. If we look a bit closer on the first one, the uh, environment art props category, we have four classes. We have the generic, low impact, high impact and hero. We always try to slot in an asset in one of these environment art groups. But of course, there are edge cases and uh, exceptions. But we won't go into details how we deal with those today. Uh, the asset classification determines the technical specification and cost, performance limitation, destruction setup, and general workflow for an asset type. All of this information lives in uh, Confluence and will not be mentioned again in the unique brief. We have a block system uh, pipeline where each block uh, represent a phase, and each phase contains a set amount of tasks. The phase and the tasks can change depending on the asset classification and also what category the asset belongs to. So this is just a brief summary of each of the classifications for the prop category. As you can see, these are just descriptive words, but it gives you an idea of what the differences are and what type of props might belong to which category. It goes from simple to create and low cost from the generic classification to a more advanced to create, time consuming and more performance heavy, which is the hero classification. It helps us de determine and make quick estimates for staffing, milestones and technical performance to the size of a, uh, size of a map. So we use the same pipeline for our other disciplines as well. And this is an example of architecture, which have three classes instead. As you can see, the phases and the tasks have changed and also changes within these classifications. So for an example, a backdrop asset won't need the second preparation stage, which is the yellow box. And the backdrop doesn't feature any of the same type of advanced destruction either. So you can basically skip the rest of the, the last part of the pipeline. 
And here is just uh, to show another example of vegetation. You will see the same change here, depending on if it's a highly complex asset, uh, which are our trees, or a less complex asset, such as the mesh scatter. And uh, just to show that this is something we continue doing regardless of um, which um, discipline you belong to, this is hardware pipeline, which is mainly weapon and vehicles. And it has a similar setup, but more phases and more tasks because of the increase in complexity of the assets. So let's dive a bit deeper into the preparation stage, which is that yellow box. Uh, the preparation phase will depend, uh, vary depending on the asset, on how much complex it will be. This stage is crucial for communication between the assigned artist, the pod, and uh, including other crafts such as level design, design, tech design, and just internal and external artists in general. So this is where the agreement and sign-off happens. As you can see from the list, these are just broad strokes and we'll, we will only look at part of it, uh, a bit of the planning from an artist's point of view. If we look then at the technical uh, standard briefs, uh, which includes the asset classification we talked about, uh, these determine the technical instruction and uh, the content workflow for an asset. An example can be such a simple thing as a high poly, whether it's needed and uh, what we expect out of it. It also determines the performance cost and uh, relevant confluence pages to refer. This is also simplifying the process of finding and onboarding uh, craft-oriented asset classes aligned with the expertise, while ensuring that expectations are met. So the visual brief then, the, the blueprint, uh, which is also accompanied by a 3D blueprint called Speed Model. It provides information for the artist and the teams to understand the intent, purpose, tasks and details. So the sign-off actually occurs here. The brief template also varies depending on the pipeline needs and the complexity of an asset. Uh, it includes very simple things such as en engine name, the asset classification, important notes, speed model, uh, and visual aids, and sometimes uh, resources as well. We also use a color language uh, to highlight important information that within the brief, and uh, the brief focus on communicating the asset's intent and needs. So this is basically that art director part of an artist's role. So what is a speed model? A speed model is a quick 3D blueprint of an asset, uh, showing its size, silhouette, important shapes and functions such as destruction and cover that is very uh, unique for us at Battlefield. Includes temporary setup for material, shaders, collision and project specific elements. It helps uh, also with playtesting, memory footprint and cost allocation. So it's not just a simple white box, uh, nor is it as complex as a final model uh, a speed model prioritizes speed, function, and intent. So, Kim, why do we, we have such an extensive preparation? So that's a good question, Erik. And this is something we get uh, asked like a lot, like every time. Like, why do we do this? Uh, so when given instructions, people tend to interpret them in different ways based on their background, cultures, and skill set. So we cannot read minds. Uh, we often don't know what people think or perceive. Uh, so this is an example just to show how different we interpret these instructions and uh, references. So it's like this, the top row, it's uh, Dresin, and uh, everyone on the team has been given the exact same reference and the same descriptive words. We can see that uh, it varies a lot depending on how you interpret the instruction and the reference. And the bottom row, you can see it's three their scenes again, but in the destroyed uh, version. Uh, 
So this is an exercise we do uh, both internally and externally as a part of our onboarding uh, processes to em emphasize the importance of uh, briefs and speed models. So using uh, visual briefs helps also overcoming uh, language barriers and allows for different uh, perspectives. So by investing our time upfront, we reduce feedback rounds and improve communication between uh, stakeholders such as design and gameplay teams, and also prevent conflicts and misalignments uh, across different layers, teams and studios. So the package everyone will receive as an artist when working on an asset consists of the uh, visual brief and speed model, the unique part of it, and then the uh, project specific and workflow documentation. So what about our external pipeline? Well, I'm happy to say that it looks exactly the same. It's just a mirror of what we have internally. Effective artist-to-artist -artist communication are essential for cross-studio collaborations and assuring a cohesive vision and execution of artistic projects. Here are some techniques that can facilitate effective communications between artists. They can be pretty obvious, but they're most likely forgotten as the project continuously goes, and especially when the deadlines are closing in. So most of the time, when you hear peers complain about the external partner collaboration and the results, well, that's due to the neglectance of these areas of efforts. So without clear and concise direction, and there are uncertainties even within the project, how would anyone expect that the external engagement would work out or deliver on expectations when the expectations from start were not clear or simply neglected? Cut your scope early and re-plan to avoid overcommitting. This will enable you from blocking your downstream departments and allowing them to plan as they don't know what's coming. It's early request and no feature or scope creeps. Having a more rigid planning process avoids issues such as lengthy feedback loops and miscommunication between departments. Conflict Conflicts may arise between internal and external teams due to difference in perspective, priorities and expectations. So resolve conflicts promptly and fairly, foster an open dialogue, actively listen to all parties involved, mediate discussions in a constructive manner, strengthens the ownership and promotes collaboration. By involving the external parties early in the planning process of a map, not only do you give a sense of openness and a collaborative uh, effort, but you also give the opportunity for an external team to rise up and take ownership. Enable early feature requests to avoid uh, feature creep or technical and performance limitations being found out too late. We're still continuously iterating on the pipeline. Um, and what we found out uh, was that we will add more classifications. Uh, as the BF 2042, we had time to evaluate and test what information was of most value to the team to enable efficient planning, accurate time estimation and iteration and communication and performance evaluation. Right, let's move on to the next segment and look at our team structure. The pod is responsible for planning of each map to a large extent with a support from lead and development director. So we'll be looking at the structure of an environment our team and what we call working in a pod. The way our pods are structured are not really a mystery. Uh, we have a pod structure for each map. 
and each pod consists of one or more artists working exclusively on that map. The number of people in a pod depends on the size of a map, so people may join or leave the team at the different stages and cycles. Uh, we also have a support structure with people working on the map, uh, sometimes exclusively and sometimes on multiple maps. This varies on, uh, based on size and scope of the map. So here we take a look at our structural artist uh, that fully owns the structural asset for that map uh, the artist is working on. They are responsible for constant communication with various dependency teams, for example tech art and tech design, as well as reporting back to their pod team. The structural artists work together with their pod, art director and lead artist to determine the map's vision and content. They also communicate with their counterpart on the external team. So here you can see a basic high-level timeline on what we usually see for a map production. As the design idea takes uh, form from white box idea to refined speed model and brief, shot grid is then populated with the content. And lead artists support and review uh, briefs and speed models to provide feedback for the artist to ensure that the base materials are following the ex uh, expectations. Once the map is ready for production, the structural artists are assigned uh, the external artists that will support to produce the content for the map. Uh, these artists will be staffed on the map from production start to content lock, and in some cases also including them during uh, bug fix phases as well, and sometimes also during white box. The day-to-day -day responsibility then, how does that look for a structural artist uh, in this uh, team constellation? So the short version is that the structural artist's responsibilities includes preparation phase, asset ownership, uh, and setup in shop grid, onboarding external teams, uh, weekly progress meetings, planning updates, providing feedback on asset deliveries, answering team questions, and offering best practice examples. So this is what we refer to being a planner uh, on the, in an environment artist uh, role. So we also hold postmortem after each map and regular uh, postmortems during production, and uh, that's every six to 12 weeks. Uh, led by a lead, to be able to act fast on the issues and concern and feedbacks and then adopt to changes during the project. Now uh, we know a little bit more about the team structure. How does all artists come together and understand their roles and tasks? We have several onboarding packages at the studio. Uh, so we have project onboarding where all the artists will be taught everything they need to know about the project vision, goals, gameplay, art direction and team structure. This is a mix of recordings and separated project uh, conference pages. Then we have craft onboarding where what an artist needs to know in order to excel in their career. The craft oriented skill sets, software and tools. These are not tied to the project. Uh, but the expectations that the studio has on an artist in their given role and career path. This consists of several onboarding courses, mentoring and coaching, and continuously goes as their career evolves and the studio pipeline and software changes over time. Lastly, we have new hire onboarding orientation, and this is for internal artists and includes information about EA, benefits, salary compensation, office orientation, and meeting the teams, and so forth. So one of our strengths within our team are that we have a solid onboarding content course uh, or courses uh, that we require every artist to take, regardless if the artists are a newly uh, recruited internal artist or an external artist at a vendor. We need everyone to take the basic courses. And we have intermediate and advanced courses, depending on the skill uh, level and project needs. 
for our external teams, we rather ensure that they are uh, prepared for anything we will throw at them. So we do take our time to properly train them. As once we're in full production, it will be very time consuming to train artists in parallel to conduct uh, and produce content. So before the external artists venture into full production, we covered their role expectations we have on them and how we should work together as an integrated team. We set the framework of their environment and help them become successful within their work. And to further strengthen the success, we ensure that they're properly introduced to the map they will be working on. Uh, so we hold an onboarding presentation with the team. We try to make these presentations quite personal, so we introduce them to the project timeline and the critical milestone dates, going through narratives, art direction of the map, and we dive into all the featuring uh, subsets. And then we take a look at the backlog and talk about how we intend to divide assets between artists. And it quite happens often that our individual artists would request to work on specific assets. So we try to keep an open discussion and we'll stop through and take uh, questions as it goes. So next up is communication and collaboration and how we approach this. We start off by ironing out and establishing the fundamental framework on how we should work together. I encourage you to go through these pillars, role expectations, communication and meeting culture there, production and tracking, quality expectations, documentation and postmortems. All of these can be driven by four simple questions. What, how, when and why. And let's look closer at each pillar. Let's start with the role expectations. Establish role expectations and make them transparent and beneficial for everyone within the team. This is an image of the breakdown of responsibilities based on experience for external artists. What we're doing here is that we're mapping out the role of responsibilities uh, to help the internal and external members to understand production expectations. We outline career progression and responsibilities for external artists as they gain experience on the project. Establish routines for the team. Ask your team about their preference in communication culture. How should we communicate and conduct meetings, feedback and drive reviews? When do we communicate? I encourage to, that everyone would uh, do daily communication by raising questions and sharing knowledge or just talk about concerns, flagging risk and informing uh, the team of your absence. If you're the reviewing artist, dedicate time to answer questions and as a lead, try to foster an, an open and transparent uh, communication culture between artists so everyone feels safe and comfortable asking questions and speaking up for themselves. Production and tracking. This is how we do it. Uh, team estimates, our internal artist, provides a basic uh, estimate of the expectation the asset will take on the backlog. And the bid is the external artist that is uh, placing estimates on their respective tasks. Team estimates are rough and only used as a guide, so we're not micromanaging the artist here. We're monitoring in on the progress instead. So as long as uh, your artist is continuously logging time, it's easier to follow and monitor in on potential risks. So we use uh, the metrics of uh, 
uh, efficiency using team estimates, and this is equal to the external artist uh, being close to the intended estimate or not. Efficiency using bids is more uh, interesting because it's uh, how accurately they are to follow their own estimates. So the outcome will be predictable. So uh, the gaps between these metrics should decrease over time. And if they don't, you need to pay attention to why. So what can you do here? Uh, we introduced a reporting system uh, where the artist would report the problem why you would exceed 120%. And from this, we could find patterns and understanding the root cause. If it's technical or if it's knowledge, we can action it and, and try to, to improve on that and help them. Quality expectations, make sure to set up your external team uh, to deliver on expectation by providing solid art direction that makes sense for your asset production. And your benchmark assets should clearly echo the artistic pillars. Document and share best practices. They should capture your need for your asset face deliveries, whatever they are. Some examples could be like, how do you do What's your preference on high-res workflows, for example, or your model and UV guidelines? And we're going through how you author textures. And very important, take your time to do postmortems. Make sure to have frequency in these. Try to keep them as simple as possible. Three simple questions would raise enough feedback from your team that will provide the most relevant information and encourage group discussions on the findings and com uh, compile the findings into action points. We do this to improve our relationship and culture, striving for inclusion, transparency, adaptability, and knowledge sharing. Over to you, Kim. Right, so let's move into the last segment of the talk, which is uh, best practices and learnings. So let's start with a question. Uh, so how do you strike a balance, keep the artist and studio happy, motivated, cost and time efficient, and this is looping back to the beginning. So to answer those questions, we uh, need to look at our mission and goals again. Uh, as mentioned before, our environment art is a Tetris-shaped, encompassing the role of an artist, planner, and art director. Our mission is to create sustainable, uh, cutting-edge cutting art for games by embracing the future of content creation. So these pillar guides us while we're also considering the studio's uh, requirements and limitations. We constantly evaluate and improve on our pipelines and workflow, team structure, mission and goals, and project scope and just staffing to find a balance. A project always changes, and this is the same you know, with any type of game you're making, different timelines and milestones. We need to be adaptable and open to change and not be stuck in our ways or earlier decisions. As I mentioned, it's just the same as with games, as with studio culture, uh, same can be applied. Uh, it's an iterative process and letting go of what doesn't work. So the secret sauce is adaptability and constantly striving for change, which is not that much of a secret sauce as it's just constant involvement and requires really hard work. But Eric here will tell you a bit more about our action points and pitfalls from our recent projects. Here are my thoughts on our learnings. So backend, ensure that your backend supports integrated teams, engine, allocate time for onboarding teams using proprietary engines and content tools prioritize rule sets and shareability between studios for efficient pipeline like automated content validation. Processes establish effective internal and external 
uh, artist processes and communication. Keep everyone included and avoid direct messaging between artists. Documentation, document everything to save valuable production time. Pitfalls, challenge and support all artists, both internal and external. And celebrate the work. Find ways to celebrate work remotely. So working with a rigid product structure has drawbacks. It limits adaptability, collaboration and communication around the core ideas and it lowers the creativity and innovation for production artists who have mastered your workflows. However, there are positive outcomes. This approach provides clarity, alignment, cohesive art quality and high accountability from all artists. It's also an effective way to allocate staffing. So what I noticed over time were that my more experienced artists were becoming less challenged by being provided speed models and briefs. So my question here was, how can I motivate my external artists more over time? So I decided to take them on a journey and I introduced the same fundamental courses as our internal artists were taking. So they will be more or less able to do the exact same type of work as, as them. So let me share some findings on the, along that journey. We allowed external artists to contribute early in the uh, map phases and help produce the backlog uh, from initial idea to the final product. We faced challenges as our internal artists were not accustomed to clarify early production questions for our internal, external artists. And from that, we had unclear expectations regarding their uh, capabilities. And this resulted into optimistic backlogs and extensive asset lists and um, production fell behind due to internal miscommunication or uh, pending decisions. And th this led to a lack of accountability. And so scope creep was a fact and it caused a lot of unclear expectations and communication issues and a lack of accountability again. However, the loose project structure did rapidly foster adaptability, collaboration and knowledge sharing. So to be successful, we need to improve communication, ownership and transparency. Find a balance between a rigid project structure that works well to get the experience to evolve in order to allow a loose project structure. But don't forget that a loose project structure also needs a framework. Right, so last part, uh, celebration. As Eric mentioned uh, before, and this is just one of the most important uh, takeaways, that's why we just want to emphasize that celebrate work and achievements together as one team, regardless if the artists are internal or external. So this is really important and foster and creates one team mentality and strengthen the bonds. It creates uh, moments and opportunities for the team to share and get visibility of their work, both internally and externally. So some examples we do are doing our team presentation that are art focused, where the pods share their weekly goals and progresses and uh, come together. And uh, some external things we do is uh, art blasts. Uh, so it cannot be stressed enough, like uh, celebrate, celebration in general is really important and uh, you're one team. So what does the future hold then for us? Um, and we would love to tell you all of it, but unfortunately we can't. 
as it's part of the next part of the project. But what we can tell you is that everything we talked about today are things that we already improved on for the next project. And uh, we are continuously investigating and improving things we already mentioned here during the presentation. And uh, just want to round off uh, with feedback quotes from the internal pod artist and external artist after the Battlefield 2042 main development. And I will only read the yellow ones. Our team delivered great visual quality. Team was proactive and developer-minded. Really felt like a part of the team. Being added to the global map channel in Slack continues to be appreciated a lot. The team enjoys the transparency of communication and visibility on the development even more often. Some time. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.